Welcome to Life Happens, where Texans come to protect their legacy and prepare for the second half of life. Join your host, attorney Kim Hegwood of Your Legacy Legal Care and our weekly guest as we navigate the challenges that emerge as life happens. Now here's your host, Kim Hegwood. Good morning and welcome to Life Happens with me, Kim Hegwood, and our very special guest today is Erin Galen. I mean, Gallion, right? Gallion. Yes, yes, Gallion. Okay. I had to think there for a minute. I was like, oh, no. That's, that's okay. Not You're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, in my head, I, it was going to sound different. And then I'm looking at it thinking, okay, I'm not going to mess this up. And uh, so, but thank you very much for being here. And you've got a company called Badass Advocate. So I, I like the name. So Thank you. <laughs> and uh And so definitely a lot of fun. And today we're going to be talking about advocating for your elderly parent or spouse. And um, and so because I know as an elder law attorney, it's imperative that you have to advocate for your loved ones. And so and uh, so let's kind of get some background to kind of get us started. And so can you tell us a little bit how you ended up helping um, caregivers to advocate for their loved ones? Yes. So I'll give you the, my story. So back in 1997, my father, Mike was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was 52 at the time. I was 20 years old. And, you know, before that he was seemed healthy and fine. And within a 10 month period, he really declined and ended up passing away. So he was just 53 53 years old when he passed. And he was just the energy of the house. He was a lot of fun. He had a great personality. He loved to dance and be silly and tell cheesy dad jokes and all that good stuff. So of course we were heartbroken. And during that time when he was sick, I was away at college. So I really wasn't a part of his caregiving journey. And I'm sharing this because it really led to what happened 20 years later. So I wasn't a part of his journey. I was so far away. Um, I thankfully was there when he passed away. So I, I was blessed to be there with him and my siblings and my mom. But um, so 20 years later, my sister, Megan, who was also my best friend, we were close from the day I was born. She was my older sister. She was a lot like my dad, actually, not with the cheesy jokes, but just really kind and loving and sweet and super patient. And she was also diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, supposedly just completely coincidental. Um, she was only 46 years old at the time and, again, came in complete shock. My sister was always healthy, running, working out. She was a former college athlete, and she ate healthy. She did all the right things that we think can help us stay healthy our whole lives, and that's what we hope for, right? And unfortunately, you know, sometimes cancer doesn't matter what you do. So she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But before that, there was an autoimmune disease that showed up. So she started to get sores in her mouth. And that's how we knew something was off. And so it took about six months for her cancer diagnosis to come to, um, to, to find out that she had cancer. When she was diagnosed with cancer, she went to the hospital because she was having trouble breathing. So this, you know, was kind of an odd situation. She didn't know she had cancer at the time. She went to the hospital, to the emergency room, and they said, you know, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Luckily, it's the good kind. Who knew that there was a better kind, right? Meaning that it was curable. And so she would have to go through chemo, which is obviously awful experience, but she would be cancer-free. The bad news was that 
she had this problem breathing and they didn't know why, because that is typically not a symptom of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so 12 hours later, they had done a lot of tests and they found out that she also had a very rare and aggressive lung disease called bronchiolitis obliterans. Other people listening to this may know it as popcorn lung. So that's been in the news recently with vaping and e-cigarettes. And so what happened, my sister never smoked an vaped, none of that. But when she had cancer for probably about a year, it caused that autoimmune disease that I mentioned showed up first. Then they discovered the cancer and that that autoimmune disease caused her body to attack itself. And that's how she got the lung disease. So it just was really, she got a bad deal. You know, it's just bad situation. And so when my sister was sick, she lived in South Carolina. I live here in Texas and I would fly back and forth to advocate for her as much as I could and support her being that we were so close. Um, my mom, my brother, thankfully lived down the street. She also was married and had two young girls. So she had a great support system, but I wasn't going to not be there for my sister. Just like my dad, I lived far away, but I wanted to make sure I was more involved this time around. And so that was a really great lesson that I like to share. And that's why I share the story about my dad, because I think it's important for people who are going through this the first time, who maybe aren't the primary caregiver to understand that they can play a role and you don't want to have life regrets like I did. Um, and be, just be there for your loved one is really important. So, so I basically was not her primary caregiver, but I, I just, my, my computer went blank for a second. Um, so I wasn't her primary caregiver, but I did advocate for her. So as background, I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years. And I realized when I was with Megan and she was in and out of the hospital that my knowledge and my experience of being in the pharmaceutical industry was really advantageous to helping her. I knew how to ask good questions. I wasn't intimidated by physicians. I'm I do that all the time. I teach reps how to speak to physicians, how to ask good questions, how to deal with uncomfortable situations when they're speaking to a doctor. So really, that's how I ended up writing this book called Badass Advocate, because after my sister, who also passed away, like my father, she lived for 13 months after her diagnosis. And really, it was because of the lung disease, not the cancer. But I realized I wanted to do something this time after losing someone who I was so close to. And I didn't want her death to be in vain. And so I thought, how can I keep her legacy alive and her spirit and my father's as well? Because that's part of the lesson as well, you know, not being his caregiver, his advocate. And so how can I share that with other families so they can learn from A, my mistakes and also from what I learned along the way. And all the things I learned in the last 20 years, I condensed into eight badass strategies. So you don't need to take 20 years to figure this out. You can do it. It's nothing hard. It's just you, if you haven't been there before, you don't know. And so that's why I, I'm trying to help other families. And so always a good thing. And so, so why do you feel, you know, is, is, I guess the question really is, is why is it important for caregivers to understand how to advocate? And so. Yeah, that's a great question. So of course, when I talk about this in the book and when I do podcast interviews or any speaking engagements, I don't bash physicians or the healthcare industry because I believe that most healthcare providers are there and they got into healthcare to help patients and that's what they want to do. 
they also are limited with what they can do because of so many patients and our system isn't set up really that great here in the US. And so we need to advocate for our loved one because if you think about that one doctor that's taking care of your loved one, they have, they're not the only patient that they're taking care of, right? They've got many other patients, but you hopefully have one sick loved one that you are focused on. So really every patient needs a personal advocate. And I know that doesn't happen in every family or every patient doesn't get an advocate, but if you have a loved one who an elderly loved one, they need your support. There's a lot. And when you're the one who's not feeling well, maybe you're also not there hundred percent. If you have dementia, Alzheimer's, you definitely need support. You need someone who will be your voice, who will read the fine print, who will be able to call insurance companies, who will ask the difficult questions because it's just too much for you as the patient. Um, I've been a patient before, not with anything serious like cancer, but I went through fertility treatments. And just with that, that's not life-threatening, but it's emotional. And I needed my husband to ask questions because I would forget all the time. I would go in and ask questions or I would go to the doctor and I would look blank like, I don't know what I want to ask you. Because, you know, they say one thing and it goes in one ear, not the other. Now you're in your head and you forget everything. So every patient really needs someone to advocate for them. And then you just need to learn how to do that, which isn't that hard. So let's help them. So give us a few good examples on uh, questions that you may want to ask the doctor or healthcare provider. Yeah. So I don't share specific questions. I share techniques for good questions because every disease or every situation is different. So we can't list out millions of questions because there are millions that you could ask and it is going to be specific to your loved one and their situation. But what we talk about in pharmaceutical sales, and this is any salespeople, they talk about this, is the type of questions that are effective. So there are two types of main questions that you can ask anyone, not just providers, anyone. They're open-ended questions and closed-ended questions. So an open-ended question would start with what, how, who, when, where, and those questions, and I'm curious as a, as a lawyer, if you use these techniques as well, um, but those types of questions get people to talk more naturally, right? Because they're open-ended and you're not cutting off or controlling the conversation as much. Now, closed-ended questions are just as effective in certain situations. So closed-ended would start with do, is, are, and there's more that I'm not thinking of the other one. Um, and so what you want to do is you want to make sure that you use these questions effectively. You want to make sure that you use open-ended questions when you want to gain a lot of information. And then if you're not clear on something, use your closed-ended questions. So for example, I had um, my mother-in-law here, was that probably about a year ago, she was staying with my husband and I, she had had a heart surgery. And so we were asking about the kind of exercise she could do after this surgery and exercise was important, but obviously you don't want to over-exercise after you just had a heart surgery, right? There's a fine balance there. So we could have said, can she walk? Now that's a close-ended question. Can she walk? Yes or no is probably the answer you're going to get. Okay. Well, that's, there's lots of other types of exercises and maybe that answer was no. Well, that doesn't help us then. Instead, you could say, what kind of exercise is appropriate for her? And then you could follow up with, 
how long? So another open-ended question, how long should she be exercising? And then if you need to clarify in between, you know, is it okay for her to climb the stairs because maybe that's a concern for you? That's fine. So my, my advice when you're going into any appointment with a loved one or if they're hospitalized and you know you're going to meet with a healthcare provider is write down your questions first. Just brainstorm, brain dump, write down as many questions as you can think of, and then go back and reread them and see if you can turn any of them into an open-ended question. Because naturally, a lot of times we think of closed-ended questions because we want to control the conversation. So take those closed-ended questions like, can she walk? And think, I think I can do better than that. Make it open-ended. What kind of exercise can she do? All right, so you want to evaluate those questions and then prioritize those questions. So when you have time with that provider, they can't spend hours upon hours with you. I know you wish they could sometimes, <laughs> but they, they don't have that time. None of us have that time, right? So make the best use of your time with the physician or the nurse. Let's not forget that nurses also equally as important. Those nurses are a wealth of knowledge. And I always spoke to the nurses and asked them questions when my sister was hospitalized, especially because they're the ones that are in now that door all day long and they know a lot. And sometimes they're not addressing you or thinking to speak to you about things because they're busy at work. They are, and their work, yes, is your loved one, but they are focused on the patient, not answering your questions. Don't be afraid to speak up and say, hi, can, while you're in here, can I ask you some questions while you're working? I can't tell you how much those nurses taught me. And a lot of times they are very generous with their time and their knowledge. And especially if you explain why you're asking questions. So I hope I answered that question. I kind of went off on a lot of information. So I don't know if you want to clarify anything or. No, no, that was good. I was just thinking that uh, I sound more like cross-examination when I have <laughs> dealt with, probably, dealt with some of my mom's, uh, you know, physicians and everything. It was, yeah, it was more like a cross-examination. You try well, to be subtle about it. Cause I always tell my mom, do not tell anybody what I do for a living. Okay. Do not. You walk in, yeah. you know, in the hospital doctor's office, do not tell them what I do. It's a secret. Right. You know, it's right. the one time you have to be very quiet. Yes. So, yes. You don't want yeah. them to be intimidated by you. They don't, well, you don't want them to think that you're trying to like lay a lawsuit on them six months later or anything. So, but well, I bet you're great at asking questions. Well, the, the care changes. So you have to be very careful, you know, mm -hmm. so, and, and how you ask questions really makes a difference because people automatically, they assume the worst a lot of times. So if you mm -hmm. ask a question in a certain way, they're going to be like, uh, I wonder why she's asking that question, you know, right. rather than how you want to answer it. So I have to be really careful about what I do. And, um, and so, and, um, but speaking of uh, being afraid to ask questions, um, what do you say to a caregiver who's intimidated by that medical professional? Yeah, I think this is really common, uh, especially here in the U.S. I don't know about all other cultures, but I would assume it happens in other cultures too. We put physicians on such a high pedestal sometimes which isn't a bad thing unless it prevents us from doing our job of being an advocate. And so just realize one, they're human too. Uh, two, your job as an advocate, it is your right to ask questions and to speak up on behalf of the patient. It is not your right to be rude or aggressive. We're all adults. You have to, it's a very emotional time when you have a sick loved one. So, you know, make sure you're just checking yourself checking how you're coming off. How are you asking questions? Does it sound aggressive or um, accusatory? 
even if you you want to ask questions like that, just kind of think of how you can rephrase it because the goal is to get your questions answered, not to begin a battle, right? If this person is taking care of your loved one, you want to make sure that you are getting every piece of information you need. And you can do that effectively when you build good relationships and you ask questions and are curious in a non-aggressive way. So one, that's part of it is not being aggressive. So that's at one extreme, but the other extreme is when you are intimidated. And I would say just for me, I had in the back of my mind, I'm doing everything for my sister. Always. I stepped out of my comfort zone and I've been speaking to physicians for my entire career, but there were times when I had to ask difficult questions about my sister's health um, and end of life questions for a 47 year old woman is a very hard conversation to have. So it's a little different than maybe other conversations, but I'll use this as an example. I had, I knew I had to ask these questions in order to get the information I needed so I could make the best decisions while my sister was still alive. So even though those conversations were very difficult for me, I kept saying this, I need to do this. I need to do this for my sister. I need to do this for me, for my family. Um, you just, sometimes you have to step out of that comfort zone because you're doing it on behalf of the person that you love so much. Yes, that I can appreciate. So what kind of words of wisdom do you have for caregivers who are just beginning the journey? Yeah. So, uh, a few things. One, I'd say, I'm sorry, because it's, it's hard. And two, just know you're not alone. Yeah. And when I, after I wrote the book, I was really welcomed into this caregiving community, I call them, people like yourself. There are so many companies out there and individuals like you who are really trying to help caregivers, families with sick loved ones. It, the, it's endless. I mean, it's unbelievable how many people have stories and after they either have lost a loved one like myself or they have just dealt with a lot of um, situations in their life where they've been caregivers. Sometimes it's a positive end. Sometimes it's not. They just, they realize, gosh, this piece is missing in the world and I'm going to create it for others. So make sure that you do some research. Uh, um, I know we're going to share this, but on my website, I share other companies and I continue to add to it of companies I come across. They're usually smaller companies that aren't as well known. They maybe, you know, don't come off on the first sheet on Google, you know, they're not in that first page, um, but they're phenomenal and they've got a wealth of information and they're willing to help and they want to help caregivers. So just know that you're not alone, even though it can feel very isolating. And then my third piece of advice would be make sure that you're not doing it alone either. So I was talking about people that you don't know and websites and companies, but my number one tip in the book, and it's the very first one because I think it's the most important one, is to build a support team for yourself and for the patient. You should never go it alone. And sometimes that's easy because you've got family like my sister. She had my mom, my brother, her husband. She had a few friends close by that were really, and myself, part of her core team, even though I wasn't down the street. That was an easier, more natural build, right, of a support team. That's not realistic for everyone, and I understand that. So then you need to think outside the box and start thinking about how you can get people to help you, even if it's in small ways. So examples that I typically use are something like, is there a neighborhood teenager that can take your trash out every Tuesday? 
just one less thing for you to think about. You may not think it's a big deal. Well, I can handle the trash. Yeah, but you also have other things to handle. So do you have a pet or does the, the your sick loved one have a pet that you can get someone to help walk the pet or anything to keep get things off your shoulders? Um, in addition to that, do you know anyone that is in the healthcare industry that can help you brainstorm just on questions alone? They don't even have to be there at the doctor's office with you, but can they help you brainstorm before you leave and, and write down these questions. And then you're even more prepared because more brains are better when you're brainstorming. You have one perspective, the more people you can get, not too many, not too many people involved, but maybe like a handful to give you some ideas of questions that they would ask, that's gonna make you a more powerful advocate. So don't do it alone. Find out how you can get people to help you. Nonprofits are also awesome. Um, think about high schools and colleges that are local. They usually have fraternity sororities that want to um, donate time. Sometimes you have nursing students or medical students who want to get some experience um, just as a resume builder. Take advantage of, of these people who are looking to help. Definitely. So Erin, if somebody wants to find you, how do they do that? So I have a website called badassadvocate.com. So that's an easy one. And then my email is Aaron at badassadvocate.com. My book is on Amazon, like everything else, right, these days. And so it's very easy to find it on there. Again, just Badass Advocate. Everything is Badass Advocate. Um, and I'm on social media everywhere. So um, they can easily find me there as well. Perfect. And so thanks so much for being on the show. Such good information for our listeners. And I appreciate it immensely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Happens with Kim Hegwood. Be sure to tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. wherever you listen to your podcast as we navigate through the challenges that emerge as life happens. The content of this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship or constitute attorney-client privilege, legal, medical, financial, or any other professional advice.